welcome to Mind Money Balance, the no guilt, no shame podcast to help you get your mind and money in balance. I'm your host, Lindsay. I'm a financial therapist and coach, woman of color, and popcorn connoisseur. I am so glad you're here. Let's go. Welcome to the final episode of season two of the Mind Money Balance podcast. I want to walk you through why I'm hitting pause and maybe it'll resonate with you. So I'm fully vaccinated, yay, for science and researchers and physicians and all of the folks who have been out there ensuring a mostly smooth or at least less bumpy rollout. And booking my first few vaccinated getaways was so exciting just to see, you know, a plane ticket land in my inbox, to see an Airbnb confirmation land in my inbox was jubilant is the best way that I could put it. And honestly, maybe a day, two, three days after I started booking those safe getaways, I started to panic. Because one thing that I've realized over the past 13 months is that doing less feels really good. Of course, I want to be doing more than nothing. But going back to the way in which life was so busy in the great before does not feel good to me. I I really started to spiral about the anxiety that comes with seeing, you know, that, that red dot on my calendar of something being on the schedule every single day and every single weekend and being booked and doing and going and being places all the time. And I desperately want to reconnect with others, to hug people safely. And I desperately don't want to go back to being as busy as life in the before. And my partner was very generous in soothing me and providing some reassurance and more or less said, look, like, Lens, this is a market correction or a rebound effect, I suppose, if you're not uh, as into money <laughs> as me. Maybe that's why you're here. And so many of us are kind of getting back to doing things that we hadn't been able to do in the past 13 months. So it's like there's this kind of rebound effect and hopefully it will level out soon and things will start to slow back down. And also, I'm in a place where now I trust myself enough to say no if things start to feel too fast or too busy or like too much. And and there's power in that, right? Of I'm excited for things that are coming and I want to ensure that I'm giving myself enough time to rest and practice self-care. So that's why after this interview with Danielle Wayne, and I'll introduce her here in a second, That's why this interview is the last one in this season. I'm going to be hitting the big old pause button on this podcast. I'm going to be hitting pause on Instagram because I was feeling this intensity, especially as an Asian American woman, of constantly sharing the the harm that comes from being held up as a model minority and the increase in violence against Asian folks. And, you know, most of us in the U.S. finally experience that collective sigh of a guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd. But I think there's also a lot of anxiety because that same week that the guilty verdict happened, there were also more murders 
of people of color, of Latinx, of Black and Asian folks at the hands of the folks who are supposed to protect us. So it's been like a lot. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. If you are here and you kind of vibe with me, you get where I'm coming from. But all that to say, I felt so much pressure on Instagram to be like, I know what's happening. It is wrong. Here's why it's wrong. And it's also weird to be hitting pause during AAPI month, Asian American Pacific Islander month, which is May, which is right now. And at first I kind of spiraled of like, oh my gosh, you know, I even spiraled about hitting pause, but I know in my body it's time to take a break. That doesn't mean I'm going anywhere. Mind Money Balance still exists. My website still exists. My emails still exist. If you are not on my email list, that's the best way to stay up to date because there are a lot of exciting things happening in May. I'll be joining Melanie Lockhart of Dear Debt and the Lola Retreat at her very first Mental Health and Wealth Summit. I'll be speaking at that about financial anxiety and money shame. I'm excited. I'll be joining a friend on her Travel Hacking Podcast, which is a side of me that I haven't talked much about, but I'm very excited to talk about the intersection of mental health and anxiety and travel hacking, because spoiler alert, it exists. I'll also be speaking at the Simple Practice Refresh, Hit Refresh Summit, and so much more. I've got some free offerings coming up. I've got some exciting new, there's just some good stuff coming. So the best way to do that is to take my quiz at mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz. You will take a financial archetype quiz. You'll learn of about which of the four financial archetypes you fall into, and that will automatically opt you into the email list. So that's a fun way to do that. So again, mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz to take that financial archetype quiz, end up on my email list because I'm going to be hitting pause here on the podcast and on Instagram. And with that, let's get to my interview with Danielle Wayne. Danielle Wayne is an online therapist who helps high-achieving professionals and recovering perfectionists, that's me, by the way, (laughs) like doctors, attorneys, and business owners with anxiety. She practices online in Iowa, Idaho, and North Dakota. And in this conversation, we get into acknowledging your financial privilege, noticing what scarcity mindset can manifest as, and being you know, okay, even if it is a little bit uncomfortable on your money journey, just acknowledging that money stuff is a work in progress. So with that, let's get into my chat with Danielle. Hey, Danielle, thanks for joining me on the Mind Money Balance podcast. Yep. (laughs) So I want to jump right in to having you kind of share with the listeners what your current relationship is with money. Complicated. Yeah. Facebook status. It's complicated. I don't know. You and I both are not on Facebook, so we are the wrong people to ask. No. (laughs) I feel like that is my status with money. I don't feel like I've ever had a consistent relationship with money. So it like, yeah, that's, that summary right there. That's okay. So tell us what's going well right now in your relationship with money. I feel like I've been very privileged and like that has also probably been a very consistent thing, but that's something that's going well. And that like, I'm in a place where I can be a therapist first off. I can 
like have be someone who has finished grad school and like have a I can have an accountant I've never done my own taxes never I don't nope I have my own business and I have like money goals that are like my money goal isn't to like get above food stamps that kind of a thing so all of that is going well for me so that is something that is it's going well but it's also something that sometimes I feel guilty about because of like how it happened which is sometimes I think a weird thing yeah and we'll get into what got you there what I heard you say is like some pretty pretty like tangible things. You're like, I have an accountant. I have financial goals. I have my own business. Those are all things that are going well. Check, check, check. What about the mindset pieces that are going well in terms of your relationship with money, less the tangibles? I think being at a place where I can recognize when my mindset stuff is coming up and say like, oh, this is like, I'm overcompensating. Overcompensating or compensating? Pick one. Like, this is how my mindset is impacting, like, the verbiage in my website, for example, or how I might be showing up in a consult with a client, for example, or that kind of shit. So being able to recognize, oh, that, like, I'm presenting myself in that way, first off, because nobody taught therapists this stuff, but also because, like, that's coming from a place of trying to compensate for feeling as though like there's scarcity or that kind of stuff. So being able to recognize that and then also realize, oh, I don't have to do that. And trying to do all of the things doesn't help. And also comes from a place of like a money mindset. It's a different one, but it doesn't make it any less of one. Yeah. So the Uh, things that are going well are are having the ability to label what's going on and go, oh, that thing is happening. It's not super helpful for me. And now I have the wherewithal and the choice to kind of choose a different adventure, as it were, when it comes to money mindset. What about some of the things that you mentioned maybe are still a work in progress when it comes to your money and money mindset? I mean, it's all a work in progress. I think that if we look at it as though I just do this one thing and flip a switch and then I get there, that's not the most helpful. And it's probably the kind of shit that we tell our clients all the time. But then when it comes to us, it's like, oh, wait, that applies as well. So I mean, it's all a work in progress. I mean, I, I feel as though not having as much anxiety when looking at my bank account, that's something that is a work in progress. Creating a budget and sticking to a budget is a work in progress. All of that verbiage and trying to not be very black and white. So trying to not plaster something everywhere to compensate for the fact that one client was like, oh, I didn't know that. That's something that is also kind of a work in progress because sometimes I have in the past and sometimes probably still do act from a place of like scarcity and have this frenzied marketing where I'm like, Oh, one person said this one thing. And so now I have to plaster it everywhere. So everybody doesn't make that same mistake. And I've done that in the past and I still have people do the exact same thing. And then it's like, well, well, I don't, I don't need to do that. Um, so (laughs) a lot of, a lot of my website and like my branding 
and a lot of stuff with like that business type stuff is a work in progress. A lot of spending for me is a work in progress because I'm usually okay with everybody else. Like I'm okay with spending money on the kids. I'm okay with spending money on the partner. And like that has not been as much of a journey, but spending on money on me, like heaven forbid, like I have to be the first person to sacrifice. So realizing that the same compassion can be applied to me. That's also one of those journeys as well. Thank you for bringing up that there is no check done. You're all good with your money stuff and noticing that there are always going to be areas that we're working on. And for you, it sounds like there are three kind of key things. One is the dreaded B word, the budget. Another is giving yourself permission to spend on yourself and not just for others. And then the other sounds like it kind of comes up in business in terms of adhering to financial boundaries and, and sitting with the maybe reflex to overcompensate for somebody who might have missed something on your website or who didn't adhere to a financial boundary. How are you upholding financial boundaries in your therapy practice? I think this is the first year where I haven't done like over a hundred CEUs in a year. So that's a thing. I think I'm only going to do like the minimum, which I'm sure my paycheck will appreciate. But also like, and that of course ties back to this idea of like, oh, am I good enough? Like let's spend money to like, shh, that's all tied together in one big yarn of, of whatever. So actually like taking the time to look at, you know, cause I'm licensed in way too many States and actually looking at what, like, what is actually required? What have I actually completed and realizing, oh, I only need like, I only need 20. I don't need a hundred. Let's only get 20. That's a novel concept. Let's try doing that this year. And that was like a weird moment where I realized that that's a thing that I could try just once. Yeah. And it it goes along with a lot of the work that you have shared with me that you work on your clients with, with, which is the anxiety that comes from being a millennial and the perfectionism that we've all been fed that if we do things perfectly, we won't feel uncomfortable. We won't experience imposter syndrome. We will feel good enough. Right. And it's, it's so interesting because so many of us as therapists, we go through similar things that our clients go through. And often we have to learn the lessons in parallel with them, or maybe a little bit ahead of them if we're lucky, but to back it up for some folks here who aren't therapists, CEs just mean continuing education. And for us therapists, we have to get X number of them every two, three, four years, depending on where you are licensed. So what Danielle was talking about was getting way above the amount required for continuing education credits as a way that that kind of anxiety and money anxiety was showing up. Yeah. So 100 hours instead of 20 hours, that's kind of a lot. Yeah, definitely. Did you see any other areas where your scarcity mindset was showing up in your business? I mean, that was the biggest one because that's super tangible. Like, you know, you have a spreadsheet. I do because I have way too many states that I'm keeping track of. And so to be able to see that and say, oh, I... I only have to do this many kind of things. I mean, I'm sure at one point in time, if someone had looked at my website and like hit control F and actually searched for how many times the words online had shown up, that would have been a big thing. 
I have dialed that down considerably because I, I would have people who would reach out to me and say that this is like before COVID. So before online therapy was super normal and people would say that they loved everything about me. But then as soon as I mentioned that all of my work was online, it was like, oh, but I don't love that. And so I, I compensated by plastering the word online everywhere. It was everywhere on my psychology today. It was everywhere on my website. And now I've, I've really toned that down because I think I've reached this point that if someone really does love the work that I do, they're probably reading it and I don't have to put it a billion times into one sentence. So I guess kind of seeing like if someone had kind of seen like, I guess probably a year ago now, my website now versus or my website a year ago versus now, that probably would have been a huge change in just like diction that I use. I haven't even looked at the exact diction on my website in a while, which again, probably shows a huge mindset change by itself. The fact that I'm not checking it that often. So things like that, I think, are how it shows up. I do check my bank account quite often though. Your business bank account or personal bank account? I hardly check my personal bank account. Fascinating. I check my business bank account a lot though. Okay. What are you looking for? That I have enough money. Got it. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm just curious. Some people like to check because they want to make sure that, you know, a client's copay went through. Some people check because, you know, it's just a part of their routine. So I'm just curious if there's a reason that you're checking it as often as you are. No, it's like, (laughs) I guess we're really getting into it. I have like reminders for when all my bills come out and then it's like, oh, I need to have this money transfer out of this account in order to have it be in this account. It's a lot of juggling accounts. And so it's kind of like with all of those reminders and like different things coming out at different times, it's kind of like checking that I have enough money so I can transfer them in time to pay all those bills. So it's that kind of a thing. Got it. Yeah. And then what about how you learned to set up your business stuff in a way that works for you. Like I heard you say, oh, I have reminders so that I know when my bills are paid. How did you end up using the current system that you're using? Guessing, trial and error. (laughs) Nobody teaches these things. So like I have an accountant. So like my dad owned a business for who knows how long. I think he started it when I was three. I use his accountant because he started doing my taxes when I was 16. And when I started a business, I was like, which I didn't even mean to start. It it was kind of like, I think I want like liability protection. Like what kind of business entity should I use? And he just told me and I was like, okay, I'll go do that. And then he was the one who was like, okay, Danielle, you got to do QuickBooks and you got to like, give me these reports. And then I was like, okay, but like, how do I do that? And then he was like, oh, and also make sure you get a business bank account. Okay, cool. But beyond that, nobody has ever told me anything. And I've just kind of like stumbled my way through however you do businesses. And how long have you been in business for yourself? Uh, Two years now. Okay. So Danielle, that's also relatively new to be in business and to already have some things that, to be honest with you, plenty of therapists don't have, which is some sort of accounting system, (laughs) a separate bank account, some sort of structure to protect them and their business, whether it's an LLC or a PLLC or an S-corp. 
So you actually have quite a few things in place that a lot of people don't have. So I heard you say, yeah, some luck was there, but something else had to be behind you getting these things in place. I feel like it's a lot of me looking at this accountant who's like done my taxes for forever, who like can do no wrong in my eyes. And he just like told me what to do. And I was like, okay, I'll go do that. So it doesn't feel like I'm the one who did all of that when he told me what to do. In fact, when he goes, when he goes out of business, I am going to not have a very good day because I will have no idea who to go to. The man's done my taxes for a very long time, over 10 years. So it's a lot of like people that I trust who they tell me to do a thing and I don't know anything otherwise. So I'm just like, oh, okay, cool. That sounds like a good idea, I guess. I don't, I don't know anything else. And then I just kind of go with it. And I, I know I've had conversations with my dad because my dad had an Inc. Incorporated, whatever that's called. And I was like, why did you do that versus an LLC? He's like, oh, I don't know. Your aunt, who's also an accountant, which I didn't know that, like set it up for me because she thought it would be a good idea. So apparently my family just has a history of people who know money stuff making decisions for us. Okay. That's also really important to point out because (laughs) that is how a lot of money stuff gets passed on. You know, research shows that most people who have somebody do their taxes found out about that tax person through their family. Right. And so we also learn things, whether it's budgeting, credit cards, how to take out a loan, how much money to save for a house. We usually learn that through our family. So what you're talking about is not abnormal or atypical in any way, we learn money stuff through the people we are around. And thankfully for you, it sounds like you've got a reputable person on your side. You don't have somebody who's like, you know, scamming your taxes or doing it inappropriately. But yeah, I I wonder if that kind of touches on, you know, the P word that you said at the top of our conversation, which is the money privilege. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of the privilege is this idea that, I like I had a college fund. And so I was able to take my first year of college at a really expensive college, like astronomically expensive because my parents had a college fund. Um, And part of it, I'm like, I don't know how the college fund was built. It's not like something that my parents always shared with me. I just know that it existed. But like that was there. So for most of undergrad, I didn't have to take out student loans. And I was able to take one year at the stupid expensive college. And like one of my aunts passed away when I was really little. And I apparently had a small inheritance that came from that. She left me some money that was supposed to go into that college fund. So that, that was a part of that too, where I just like, that is something that I did not recognize was privilege until you talk to people who didn't have that, who have to take out a stupid amount of college loans. And so that was definitely privilege. And then to be able to go straight from undergrad to grad school and, you know, other things like being able to get a house and car and like these things that like I had growing up, all of that is privilege. But of course, you know, I was an only child. I didn't even have to share my fucking bedroom. I didn't recognize that any of that was privilege. I recognize it now being a social worker, but at the time I didn't. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up because I think for a lot of people, we think of privilege as a very 
as it existing in one place, as in I have racial privilege or I have gender privilege, but there is also socioeconomic privilege. I come from a financially privileged background and some of my source of money shame was how am I living paycheck to paycheck when my parents saved a lot of money for me to go to school. And yet as a social worker, I was really not making enough to make ends meet. And I had so much shame for having like, in my mind, wasted their money or not known enough to do better with my money. So I appreciate you talking about the financial privilege that you also had access to. Outside of, you know, just getting your information from your family, are there certain tools or resources that you often use or recommend when it comes to money management or money mindset? No, because that would require doing research and things like that. And I found that with myself, if I allow myself too much time to do that stuff, that's no bueno. So I have to like set an amount and then just stick with it because it's one of those things where, so like with budgeting, if I'm sitting here debating the like the difference between 500 or 600 for this one thing, if I have the luxury of debating that, does it really matter? So, I mean, like I will set a budget and then try to stick with it within reason kind of a thing. And like, if I'm looking for something, like if I'm going to open up a new credit card, I might Google and see if any there are any commonalities between a few top articles. But if there's no commonalities, I am not going to spend who knows how much of my life researching all of that kind of stuff. So I don't think about money or do money stuff or books or any of that shenanigans, which maybe I should, but I don't. Okay. Which is so interesting because you and I met because of the money shenanigans. Yep. The irony. Actually, you and I met because I liked Monica's websites and then she like promoted you kind of a thing somehow through the Instagrams. So it wasn't the money stuff by itself. It was the connections and we're all about connections. So Mm -hmm. that was how Mm -hmm. I don't go seeking out money stuff. Yeah. I also don't read. Sometimes my clients are like, oh, you should read this book on anxiety. And it's like, that's the last thing I'm going to (laughs) do after a day of work. One thing that you have shared with me in the past was that how talking about this money shenanigans actually showed up in your practice in that you are able to talk about money with your clients in ways that maybe you either A, hadn't before or B, didn't realize was abnormal. Can you say a little bit more about how money shows up when you talk to your clients? Yeah. I mean, I, from like from my perspective, I have less resistance about saying, let's have these conversations about money instead of it being something where I feel like I just kind of like slink off into the darkness and avoid all of those conversations. But it, sometimes it ironically feels like after we talk, like the day after we talk or something like that, a client's like, oh, here's, you know, there's something that I want to talk to you about, but I don't know if we can talk about it. And in my mind, I'm like, well, what the fuck could it be? Like we've talked about who knows what, right? Like we've talked about anxiety. We've talked about with some clients, like we talk about sex and relationships and all this other bullshit. But for some reason, money is more shameful and they're hesitant to bring that up more than all this other bullshit in their life. And so being willing and able to have some of those conversations about that, it always seems to happen right after we talk. So I'm anticipating something happening tomorrow. Hmm. Interesting. But 
isn't that so interesting that your clients are able to talk to you about anxiety, perfectionism, sex, but money is like, Hey, Danielle, I have to give you a heads up that I'm going to talk about something really deep and dark. Well, and they ask for permission to like, can we talk about this? And like, they give me the room to deny them, which of course I'm not going to do, but they don't with other stuff with other stuff. It's like, Hey, here's this thing that we're going to talk about. And it's like, okay, cool. We're going to talk about that. But with money, I find it interesting that it's like, Ooh, can we talk about this? Have you ever asked them why they seek permission? Now I'm just being nosy. (laughs) No. Yeah. I'm so curious. I assume it's the same reason that, I mean, the same money mindset stuff that makes Mm -hmm. it so my own tendency with money, like talking about a fee, like, oh, let's talk about the money you're going to pay me to have this conversation makes me want to just like slink into a deep, dark corner and hope that it works itself out. And I don't have to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, all anxiety has this tendency to cause avoidance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting listening to you say that. Cause I know you're kind of saying that in just, but I think a lot of therapists get stuck on this idea that we are charging for the 50 minutes or hour that we're spending with the client, but we are also charging for our years and years of expertise. We're also charging for our knowledge, for our you know, professional maintenance of all of our credentials. Like we're charging the hundred hours more. Yeah. The hundred hours a year (laughs) or whatever it is. I mean, we're we're also charging for all of that. Not to mention we're holding space for their mental health. So I just wanted to point that out for anybody who's listening and it's like, Oh yeah, I am charging per hour. It's like, you're not charging per hour. It feels like that, but you're really charging for so much more. Who do you like to work with? Speaking of your practice. I like to work with anxious professional millennials who are struggling with professional perfectionism, who probably would really hate to mess up that word just like I did. (laughs) That's who I like working with. Yeah. And you practice in quite a few States. Where do you practice? Idaho, Iowa, and North Dakota. Yeah. Why, why that population anxious millennial professionals? I've just noticed that that's who I tend to work well with when thinking about, you know, because when you start off as a therapist, our field is just kind of like work with everybody because that's what good social workers do. Mm-hmm. But then when thinking about what I really wanted to do with my practice and I reflected on the clients that I work well with, those are the people that I just tend to work well with. They tend to work well with me. And if I look forward to my day, then I feel like the meetings that I have tend to go better and everybody all around has a better experience, which is kind of the goal. Yeah. And I think that's exactly it is when we as therapists can show up excited to see our clients and fully rested. And then when we kind of clock out for the day, we can turn it off. We do better therapeutic work. When we see anyone and everyone, we're exhausted. We're on the road to burnout and we're not doing good work. No. And sometimes it does a disservice. Like there are some, some struggles where really, if I worked to someone who struggled with those things, I know that I would be doing them a disservice. Right. Um, and I'll tell people that because mm-hmm. I'm maybe sometimes too honest, but I would much rather have somebody work with someone who's going to help them more than work with someone where it's like, eh, you are a warm body. <laughs> That's not helpful. Just because I exist doesn't mean I'm going to help everybody. Right. Right. And I appreciate you saying that, like, just because we can, doesn't mean we should. And in very few fields would they say like, oh, you don't specialize in that. 
don't worry about it. Just see them anyway. Like if there was an OB gin and they were like, oh, hey, we've got somebody with a broken arm. Can you set it? They're not going to say like, oh, yeah, just go for it. Can you do surgery? Remove this guy's cancer? Can you do brain surgery? Right. No, that's a hard (laughs) no. But for some reason in our field, we're expected to be intense generalists for everything, which makes not a lot of sense. Yeah. Because we're the givers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which comes with a lot of baggage, right? Yeah. So where can folks find you if they want to learn more about you and your work? My website for therapy work is millennialtherapy.com and my Instagram is counselor place. Why counselor place? Because I am being super vulnerable and branching out into the world of YouTube and doing let's plays for video games and discussing more of the mental health as it comes up in video games because we don't talk about that. Okay. Can you say a little bit more about that? I'm very curious. So horror games, for example, it is so common to have like the psychiatric hospital be a setting for the horror game. How does that impact somebody who then actually may need to be in that setting, like in the real world? Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I've, I've worked in a, a psych hospital way longer than I'd like to admit. They're not fun, but they're going to be seen. We talk about how mental health is portrayed in TV shows. We talk about how it's portrayed in movies, but we don't talk about it when it comes to video games. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's often lazy writing to have mental health be like the bad guy kind of a thing because it's another really common trope to have it be where you're the bad guy because of schizophrenia Mm -hmm. and also to have just like bad writing in the sense of I was I was watching one the other day where it's like this person's schizophrenia caused depression. And I was screaming at my TV going, that's not how schizophrenia works. So yeah, um, I get a little passionate about it because it really irritates me. But mental health is not portrayed in a positive way, in, especially like horror games, but in general, video games. I appreciate your take on that because I think there is so much There are so many think pieces and ideas about the way that mental health shows up in TV shows or on social media, but there isn't a ton of dialogue on how it shows up in video games. So I'm, I'm sure that your voice is very welcome there and much needed. I think so, but I also think I'm hilarious and entertaining, even if I'm not on YouTube. So, (laughs) well, thank you, Danielle, for coming on today. Are there any other thoughts you want to leave the listeners with when it comes to money and money mindset? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, it doesn't always have to be. It's complicated and but yeah. And if you are a little gaggy about it, there are resources available out there is what I will say as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Danielle. All right. So let's get into the takeaways from my chat with Danielle Wayne. So first she said that, look, money is complicated. There is no one time in your relationship with money where you just check a box and everything is done. It's a work in progress. And we've heard this theme come up again and again this season on the podcast. I know Nate Astle had a very similar takeaway, as did recently Stephanie Gardner-Wright. So we have to be really generous with ourselves that things are going to take time. And I'm a huge fan of picking out one thing that you are focusing on in terms of your relationship with money and getting really comfortable with it before moving on to another kind of area 
in your financial life. So for example, getting really comfortable automating your savings and watching those different savings accounts grow. And once you get into a comfortable rhythm there, then maybe taking a look at something like your spending plan and making sure what's coming in and what's going out makes sense, or then taking a look at how your money in your retirement account is set up. So being really generous with yourself that your relationship with money is a work in progress and not everything is suddenly going to be poof, done, great, wonderful as you are working on your relationship with money. Takeaway number two from my chat with Danielle is noticing when scarcity mindset shows up. And again, scarcity mindset is this idea that there isn't enough to go around. And it also, to me, is intersected with perfectionism, right? And what I like to remind you all when it comes to perfectionism is it's not about doing things the right way, as it's often stereotyped in our culture. It is about doing things to prevent the sensation or the feeling of being uncomfortable. So I think scarcity and perfectionism are often incredibly intertwined. And what I thought came up with Danielle was her example of taking over a hundred hours of continuing education when she only needed 20 hours of continuing education. To me, that's that intersection of scarcity and perfectionism. Scarcity of, I don't know enough. I don't have enough information. Somebody else has more than me. And therefore I have to, to like, in order for myself to, for her as a therapist, to charge an appropriate amount and to say, I'm a specialist, I have to really get all of this information that is out there. And that shows up with money too, this idea that we don't have enough, which in some cases is true, but as we know for a lot of people, they do quite literally have enough, but they still fear that they will run out or that the amount of money that they thought they had set aside wasn't enough and that they have to know more and do more. So they're constantly consuming information on money podcasts or on personal finance, or they're constantly increasing their emergency fund amount when they have enough. So noticing when that scarcity mindset comes up and asking yourself how it's helping you or how it's harming you. And if it's harming you, if it's not helpful at all, how can you dial it down? Takeaway number three is acknowledging your privilege. I mentioned to Danielle in our chat that so often we think about privilege in very binary ways. We think about it in terms of race privilege or class privilege or gender identity privilege, but there are so many ways in which privilege can show up in our lives. And it's not about saying, oh, I can't believe I had that. I'm, I'm such an imposter for having had that leg up. It's about acknowledging, look, if you had college help financially, whether you had college help in terms of social connections, like knowing the person who ran the tutoring center at your college, whether it's having connectedness in terms of privilege to uh, privilege to a broader network, right? Danielle mentioned having a connection to an accountant. She didn't have to do all of the Googling and searching and asking around. She had somebody who had been used in her family for a long time and she could innately trust them. Or if it's access to something like a vehicle, that's another element of privilege that we often don't think about. And again, it's not about saying, because I had this, I need to be doing more. 
It's about saying that is a way that I had a leg up and how can I use that privilege to better my life and also better the lives of those around me. So if you do have access to college without the burden of student loans, how can you use that information and use that access to better the lives of those around you? And it doesn't mean that you have to be a martyr. You guys know that I'm not about that life because it's only going to burn you down. But can you give back in terms of potentially a donation to your alma mater? Or maybe you can give back in terms of time, maybe volunteering your time in said tutoring center. So just acknowledging that privilege as a part of our intersectionality, knowing that we all hold space in marginalized identities and in privileged identities and just acknowledging that both of those things can be true and that that is okay. Okay, so those are the takeaways. Money is a work in progress, acknowledging when scarcity mindset shows up and also noticing your privilege in its many forms. And again, I am hitting pause on this podcast as we enter AAPI Heritage Month, that's Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and Mental Health Awareness Month. I was really spiraling about hitting pause right now as I hold space in in both of those places as a biracial Filipino American and as a person who talks about mental health for a living and has also experienced and continues to experience struggles with my own mental health. Both of those things are really important to me. And so instead of spiraling like, oh my gosh, I have to be on because I am a API and because I do talk about mental health and my relationship with my own brain... (laughs) But I think one thing to acknowledge is like sometimes hitting pause is a way to practice good mental health care. Sometimes hitting pause is a good way to say like, I don't have to be the spokesperson for biracial or mixed Asian folks, right? That isn't my job and my job alone. So if you are also feeling the pressure to show up as a mental health advocate, if you are feeling the pressure to show up as an Asian American this month, it's also Jewish American Heritage Month. If you are feeling the pressure to show up as like a representative for the Jewish people, give yourself permission to take a step back, right? A lot of the time, these awareness months are great in that they provide visibility But it also means a lot of labor is being done by the folks who inhabit those different intersectionalities, right? If we think back to February, which was Black History Month in the United States, oftentimes a lot of the labor goes on Black people to show up and talk about their experience, which is like, it's an unintended consequence, right? Again, things can be good and bad. They don't have to be binary. They don't have to be Black and white. So if you inhabit any of those identities of May, Mental Health Awareness Month, Asian American, Pacific Islander, Heritage Month, Jewish American Heritage Month, also give yourself permission to take a step back and be like, look, I don't have to be the spokesperson for this month. And P.S., if anybody is asking you as a person who inhabits any of those identities to show up and speak about this, make sure you're getting compensated. (laughs) You knew I had to throw that out there, right? It is like a, a such a slap in the face when organizations, institutions, systems ask us, folks who are in these spaces, to talk about our experience or lend our labor or our knowledge to the betterment of other people and not compensate us for it. So if they are really, truly trying to inhabit or embody being fully inclusive, 
they had better pay you. <laughs> because asking an Asian, Jewish, or person struggling with mental health issues to perform and to teach and to lend knowledge without paying them for it is performative. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to step off of my soapbox. As I hit pause on this podcast, there are a few episodes that are favorites here that if you haven't listened to, I will link them in the show notes. They are Overcoming Scarcity Mindset with another Danielle with Danielle Bailey, Financial Anxiety with Dr. Devin Price. They wrote a book on laziness, and I highly recommend checking them out and checking out their work, but definitely listen to that podcast episode on financial anxiety and how it showed up in their life. And then an oldie but a goodie from season one is How to Have an Abundance Mindset Without spiritual bypassing. So again, all of those will be linked in the show notes. And in order to stay in touch with me while I'm on this podcast hiatus, while I'm on an Instagram hiatus, make sure you are on my email list. The best way to do that is to go to mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz. That's where you'll take a financial archetype quiz to learn more about your relationship with money. And you'll be opted into my email list. So you don't miss out on anything happening this month. There is so much goodness happening and to give my mental health a little break. Like I said, I'm hitting pause here and on Instagram but I would still love to see you in your inbox. My brand, my brand, my business is not going anywhere. So with that, instead of me signing off by saying, I'll see you next week, I will see you when I return. Take good care. Neither the host or guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, medical, or other professional information. If you want professional help, please seek it out.